Well, here in our text today, what we're going to see is the power of prayer as Jesus chooses his 12 apostles. Let's just jump right in. Verse 12 is where we left off. Luke chapter 6. Now it came to pass in those days that he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And Jesus here in our text, he's at a critical point in his ministry. On the one hand, he's been very successful. Uh, crowds flocking to him. He's teaching with authority. He's casting out demons. He's healed many people, feeding a bunch of people. I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. And the crowds are flocking to him. But crowds are a fickle thing. Jesus knows that as well. He knows that the religious leaders are not happy with him. They hate him. They're looking for an opportunity to kill him. And so Jesus knows the clock is ticking. He's soon going to be crucified. And of course, that's the reason he came. We looked at that last week. Easter is the culmination of Jesus' mission on earth. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so certainly that's why Jesus came. But Jesus here in our text, he has in view not only the purpose of his life but, and the purpose of his mission, but what he has, he has the focus on the purpose of his followers' lives and on their mission. On, on passing the baton to those that he is going to entrust the work that he started to. Now, Luke, he, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And Luke emphasizes right out the gate in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, uh, that he says, In my former work, O Theophilus, I told you about all that Jesus Christ began both to do and to preach. Right, And the, the operative word there is began, because the implication is, is that Jesus' work continues. Even though he suffered, died, was buried, rose again, ascended into heaven, now Jesus continues his work on earth, and he, and he continues that work through you and me. Luke goes on in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1 to tell the, the disciples, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here's the point. God operating in the world today through men and women, through, through, through everybody who's got a belly button, God wants to save and, and operate and move and work through. Now the question is, will he be able, will he find that willing vessel to move and work through? Because if you're a born-again follower of the Lord, it's just not about your salvation and your ultimate glorification with God in heaven. you got a whole period of time in between coming to know Jesus and then coming face-to-face with Jesus. And that, that's called this period of sanctification, this $12 Christian word, which means to grow. And God wants you to grow in your faith, and he wants you to help other people to grow in their faith. And so here now in Luke chapter 6, Jesus, he's preparing to choose the men to whom he's going to pass the baton to. So this is a big deal. 
David Guzik, in his commentary, he points out that there's nothing in Jesus' three years of ministry before the cross that's more important than this moment right now. Jesus choosing his 12 apostles. Now, the, the focus, the big idea of our text is prayer and the importance of it. We're going to spend a lot of time doing that. But before I get there, I want to make two quick points of application. Founded on the premise that if Jesus, if his model is to raise up disciples and to trust them with the gospel, and it is, if that's the foundational premise, then my question for you today is twofold. Number one, are you available to him for that purpose? Maybe even if you're taking notes, you might just jot it down. Am I available to the Lord for his purposes that he wants to work uniquely in me and through me? Notice there in verse 13, you see that Jesus called his disciples to himself, right? And, and the, he'll say again, we're not there yet, but in verse 17, just notice the beginning, it says, and he came down, down from the mountain, with them. So he called them to himself, and then he comes down with them to move, to operate, to work in power and in authority. Now, here's the deal. If he called the disciples to him, it stands to reason that they had to be near to Jesus to hear his call, right? Are you near to Jesus to hear his call? Paul said this to the Romans, Romans chapter 12. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That word present, the idea is to set near, to set near. A lot of times in counseling, I'll have a, a, a pre-marriage counseling, I'll get a, you know, a guy and a gal, they're engaged, they're all excited about getting married, and I, and I will talk to them to this concept about setting your life near to God. And I tell them, listen, in pre-marriage counseling, the whole idea here is that we want what God wants. And that we're going to seek what God wants and not what you want. Now, for the women in particular, this is kind of a tricky subject to talk about at the, at the starting of counseling. Because what I'm saying is, look, I know you want to get married, but does God want you to get married? And I want you to, you know, to be mindful of that and seeking that. And so often the gals are like, lay off, Jack. I got a ring and I got a date and you're not getting in the way of that, you know? <laughs> But I'll use some sort of an object as an illustration, and I'll say, you know, for instance, I take this microphone. Now, this represents all of your intense desire uh, to be married and the house with the picket fence and all of that. And what I want you to do right now in, in you know, the idea of premarriage counseling, I want you to let go of that. Set it before the Lord. Take your hands off. You've just set that. You've just set your desires, your dreams, your hopes. You've just set them before the Lord. And now you've said, God, this is my desire, but I let go of it. I give it to you, and I give you the permission to move and to work and, and to, to speak to me here in my life. And that's this whole idea, is that the disciples, they, they were near to Jesus. Their, their, their lives now, you know, are given over to the Lord. And so are you available for the Lord to move and to work and for him to do the things in you and through you that he wants to do? See, God's not looking for your ability, he's looking for your availability to move and to work and to continue his work. Paul told Timothy, and the things which you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so again, our foundational premise, if this is Jesus' model, and it is, to raise up disciples and to entrust them with the gospel, number one, are you available to him for that purpose? Number two, 
What are you doing then to raise up the next generation? What is it that you're doing to pour into the next generation, whether it be your children, whether it be those that are younger than you in the faith? What are you doing to do that? The writer of Proverbs said this, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Now, in context, this is talking about financial stewardship, but arguably, our greatest treasure is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would say the same thing applies, that, hey, we need to leave an inheritance of our faith. And the fact of the matter is, you're going to leave an inheritance. It's just a matter of what kind of inheritance are you going to leave. You can leave an inheritance of bitterness and anger or indifference, or you can leave some sort of a spiritual inheritance of, hey, I've lived a life that focuses on the temporary rather than the eternal, where the cares of this world choke out the things of God and my more is caught than taught, and the people that, that I'm influencing, maybe my children, maybe those that just look to you for your life's example. What kind of inheritance are you, are you leaving for the generation that comes behind you. Because if you leave the kind of inheritance that, ba- that basically says that, hey, you know, we're going to focus and stress about all the things that are temporal. Well, the Bible says your life's a vapor. You're here for a little while, then you're gone. And what you've just done is you've left them with an inheritance of something that's worthless. So Jesus here, he's preparing to select his disciples. It's a big deal. And now I want you to notice how he does it. What's he do? He prays. He prays all night. Now, the most widely understood definition of prayer is communicating with God, right? You pray, you're communicating with God. By the way, going back to the pre-marriage example, pre-marriage counseling, we'll talk about communication. And And I will ask people from time to time, to, you know, in the context of counseling, I'll say, explain to me what communication is. Give me a definition of communication. I would ask you today, what, what's your definition of communication? Get it in your mind. And, and inevitably, what I've discovered is the vast amount of times when, when I ask a person that question, <clears throat> define for me what communication is, give me a definition of it, They'll give a a definition that focuses on what you say and how you say it. Now, that's great, but it's only half of what communication is all about. Because it's not just what you say and how you say it, but it's listening to what the other person says, right? God's given you two ears and one mouth. That should tell you something. We should listen twice as much as we speak. Some of us haven't gotten that memo. And so, <laughs> but the most widely understood definition of prayer is communicating with God. Not just speaking to Him, but listening, right? We bring our concerns and requests to Him, and then we listen for His response. Now, what I want you to see here is that Jesus, when He goes to God in this prayer, He doesn't throw up a hungry prayer, okay? You know a hungry prayer, don't you? It's lunchtime, you say, Lord, thanks for the food, in Jesus' name, amen, let's eat, you know? Jesus doesn't throw up a hungry prayer here, no, he prays all night. Now, if you were with us last week, you know, one of the emphasized points was that Jesus 
is God in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God. So the question comes up, why did Jesus have to pray all night if He is, in fact, God? And I like the way David Guzik answers this question in his commentary. I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, Jesus was God, yet He did not simply use His infinite knowledge to pick uh, the apostles. Instead, He prayed all night. Like every other single or every other struggle Jesus faced, he faced this one as a man, a man who needed to seek the will of his Father and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit just as we do. You see, you need God. I need God. We need to rely upon him. We don't know everything, and there are times we think we know everything, and we think that we're going to inform God in prayer of what the circumstances are and what he should be doing. But listen, God is God. And so so we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus prayed, we're praying, seeking the Lord. And truly, that's our greatest privilege as Christians, that we have this access to God. That God tells us in his word that we are to come boldly before his throne because his throne is the throne of grace and that we have access anytime, day or night. The God of the universe, the God that created everything, the God that holds the molecules of your body together in his hand has condescended to make himself available to us at any moment in time that we we can walk right into his throne room. I'll be at my office and studying and, you know, the, the word is don't call, don't write, don't text, I'm busy, don't come in. My grandkids come over, the doors of my office go wide open. You guys come right on in here. And, and God has given us this great privilege. Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 tells us not only is it a great privilege to pray, but he says it's, it, it's incumbent upon us to pray. In Luke 18, he says that men should always pray and not lose heart. Why? Here's why. Because when we pray, we admit our need for God and our total dependence upon Him. Totally dependent on Him. In other words, understand this. Prayer is not a a stick that you beat the pinata with. You know, a lot of people, that's prayer. It's the stick, you beat the pinata, and out come all the goodies. That is not prayer. Now, we can, we can ask God for things, certainly in prayer, but really the attitude is, God, I depend on you. It's not intended to be a means of trying to get from God what we want, but rather a means by which we enable God to give us what he wants. And you say, well, gosh, he's God. How do you possibly enable God? Well, here's how you enable. It's a matter of surrender. See, God wants to move and work in your life, but you've got to surrender You have to take your will and you have to first surrender your will to God. Brenda and I were currently uh, reading a biography by George Mueller. It's our evening reading. We we read it together. We've read it before. It's a great great biography. I highly recommend it. George George Mueller, basically, short story is, he's a guy that that, uh, loved the Lord and served the Lord back in the 1800s and he opened several orphanages before he died, he, he fed, uh, clothed, and housed thousands of orphans. And he never asked anybody for a single penny. Never asked man for anything. He took every, all his needs, all his requests, they all went to the Lord in prayer. And, and God provided miraculously. And in fact, you know, he would say in many ways, 
That was, that was the, the driving force of his ministry. That yes, he ministered to orphans and, and had a heart for them and that was his mission in life, but he saw his greater purpose was that everybody would know that there's a God in heaven who answers prayer and that he's faithful. Here's what George Mueller said about his prayers. He said, I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. And that's the trick, isn't it? Being ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. So often I want to go to God and say, okay, God, here's the deal. The problem is this, and here's the answer, and uh, if you could do that by five, that'd be great, right? And a lot of times I want to tell God what he needs to do, what the answer is, is to be, but see, God doesn't work like that. Billy Graham said this, he said, prayer is the rope that pulls God and man together, but it doesn't pull God down to us, rather it pulls us up to him. And see, that's the attitude of prayer. That's the idea, and it's very important because our lives, they're filled with anxieties, and our anxieties often tempt us to carry burdens that God wants us to surrender to Him. And we're so caught up on how we're going to, you know, God is going to engineer the solution to this, and we're focused on that, that we aren't willing to say, okay, God, I'm going to give, you the, I'm going to give this to you, I, whatever the, the issue may be. You know, God, I, I, need, I need my mortgage payment paid, you know, and I'm going to lose my house. Rather than saying, look, God, you, you give and you take away. If, the, if you want me to have this house, then, then you'll provide. If you don't want me to have this house, God, then, then you won't provide. But I know you will be faithful to, t- to care for me. My life is just the, the car that you're steering. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, one night alone in prayer makes us new, a new man. Changed from poverty of soul to spiritual wealth, from trembling to triumphing. Jesus prayed all night, and prayer is something he did a lot. Bible tells us that he prayed early in the morning before beginning his day. He would often go out when it was dark, often go out alone to pray. Bible tells us that Jesus prayed for others. Bible tells us that Jesus prayed with others. Again, here in our text, he prayed all night before choosing his 12 disciples, 12 apostles, Uh, he taught his apostles, his disciples, to be persistent in prayer. As a matter of fact, his example in prayer was so good that his disciples came to him and they said, teach us how to pray. The account takes place in Matthew's gospel. I'll put it on the screen for you. So Jesus says, in response to their their request, hey, how how do we pray? He says, when you pray, not if you pray, when you pray, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Notice what he begins first with. He begins first by acknowledging who it is that we are praying to. We're praying to our Father. Praying to our Father. And that's important because it tells us that all prayer is predicated on relationship. It's all predicated on relationship. The Bible teaches us that prayer is the privilege of those that have become God's children. That as a child of God, because of that relationship, you can now come boldly into the presence of the Lord, right into the very throne room of God. You can have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 
because of your relationship with God. The psalmist said this, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. But, listen, he says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Now, I want you to think about this. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. What makes a person righteous? Paul gives us the answer very candidly in Romans chapter 3, verse 22. He says that we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Paul told Timothy this, there's, there is no one, there, there's only one God uh, and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is what makes you and I righteous, is what gives us access to the throne of God. Jesus and his shed blood on the cross and our confession of faith in him. Now, with that in mind, what the psalmist is, is communicating there in Psalm 34 is that if you're God's child, his ear is open to your cry in prayer, but if you reject the Lord, not only isn't his ear open to you to hear your prayers, but his face is actually set against you. And so those that would pray that have not surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, God will not hear their prayers. That's what that is saying. Now, having said that, there is one prayer that God will hear. He heard it from 45 people last week. And that's the prayer of surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, inviting Him to, to, to save, right? Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. And so, so anybody can come to Jesus, but He's not going to hear the prayer of somebody who's not ready to surrender their life to Him. That's the point. And so we begin our prayers, Jesus said, by acknowledging who we're praying to. We're praying to our Father. And, and as well, Jesus says, secondly, that he's our Father in heaven. In heaven. That's important. The idea there is that we're praying to the one who rules over us, who is in sovereign authority over us. The writer of Ecclesiastes said, Don't be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, listen, God rules over everything. Everything he does is, is right, which is why Jesus continues in his prayer when his disciples ask him how to pray. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying, listen, the attitude of our prayer needs to be, look, not my will be done, God, but let your will be done. And this, by the way, is why Jesus prays all night before he picks his apostles. Why? Well, because there's many times in our lives, and you've experienced this, when you think that you know the right way to act. You know the right thing to do. But the Bible says God's ways aren't man's ways. And so we have to be mindful of that. Sometimes God will, through prayer, lead us to do something that makes no earthly sense. But God, through a concerted time of prayer, will align our hearts and our, and our minds to what it is that, that we are to do. You think about this with, with Jesus picking his apostles. I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes here, but we know that the apostles, they're not always the sharpest knife in the drawer, you know? And, and they, 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 they do some stupid stuff, and you're like, that's who you prayed for all night? 
like like there there there's a direction where you can go in where it's like God leads you in a particular direction. I'll give you an example biblically. So uh, if you're with us when we went through First Samuel, First uh, Samuel, I think it's chapter 16, tells the story of of uh, God directing the prophet Samuel to go to the house of Jesse. And, and, he, and he wants him to, to pick from the sons of Jesse who the, who's the future king of Israel going to be. So, so Samuel's like, I'm on it. That's cool. So he gets there, and he's greeted by, by you know, Jesse, and all of his sons are there, and he sees Eliab, the firstborn. And he's like, this has got to be the guy, right? Well, let me put it on the screen for you. Oh, it is uh, 16. First Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7. It says, So it was when they came to the house of Jesse that he, that Samuel, looked at Eliab and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's why praying is so important. Because when we pray, there's a way, we, you know, the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And we need to be mindful of the fact that when we pray, we have access to the one who is all-knowing. That's, that's one of the attributes of God. He knows everything. So, so if we've got access to the one who knows everything, if I've got an important decision to make, it doesn't stand to reason, I probably ought to seek the one who knows everything. Problem is... Not the fact that God knows everything, it's just sometimes the way he leads doesn't fit in with our plans and we aren't willing to yield our will to his because we're so fixed on walking according to what we can see and what we can figure out, what we can engineer, that when God wants to pull a rabbit out of the hat and do something totally different, we're like, them? I'm going to choose them? Like, are you, are you kidding me? Thomas, like that guy doubts all the time. You want me to pick him? Judas Iscariot, that guy's not trustworthy. Like, he's going to stab me in the back. I know it. Yeah, he, that's, that's, you know, the one to pick. So Jesus, he prays all night. And the text says he calls 12 to himself, <clears throat> Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot. Notice that they're, they're mentioned in pairs. And, and if you read through the Gospels, they're often mentioned in pairs. And I love the observation that Warren Wearsby makes. He says, you know, uh, the, the disciples appear in pairs um, probably because Jesus sent them out two by two. And, and it's totally speculation, but, but we'll read where Jesus sends them out two by two, and that probably was the pairing up that he did. So uh, just an interesting little tidbit there, but... The, the, the deal here is most of these guys that, that Jesus picked, we, we don't know a lot about. You know, there's others that, that we know more. If I asked you to, to, to name who the apostles were, you couldn't probably name all 12. There's certain guys you'd be able to say, yeah, Peter and, you know, James and John and so on. But, but there's most of these guys we know very little about. Again, what we do know is that they ain't the sharpest knives in the drawer. We're like, you know, gosh, they're fighting over who's the greatest over here. They're fighting over, you know, what position of authority they're going to get over here. They're, you know, Jesus shows up having been away, and there's some dad who, you know, the disciples are trying to cast the demon out of her son, out of his son, and, and they can't do it. And Jesus shows up, and the guy's like, I'm glad you're here. Like, these, these knuckleheads, they can't do it, you know, kind of thing. 
I mean, we're constantly seeing all of this stuff. There's a scene in, in John chapter 14, cracks me up every time, where Jesus, he's talking to his disciples, it's this holy moment, and he's like, you know, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And, and, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas is like, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus was like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me, you know. And then Philip's like, oh, hey, just show us the Father, Jesus. That'll be cool. Just, just show us the Father. Jesus is like, are you kidding me? He's, and he actually says this to, to Philip. He's like, I've been with you three years. Like, don't you know me by now, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, you know, so we've got all of these examples of, like, these are the guys you prayed for all night long. I mean, what about Judas? He, he betrays him, and then, the, you know, the rest of them scatter. You know, just crazy stuff. I, I put this in my notes because I loved it, but a man once asked a theologian, why did Jesus choose Judas Iscariot to be his disciple? And he replied, well, I don't know, but I have an even harder question. Why did he choose me? Right? Why did he choose me? Because he's good. Because his plans aren't our ways. Because he's got work that he wants to do. Now, you notice something incredible in Acts chapter 4. I'll put it on the screen for you. But after the resurrection, Peter and John, they have a bold sharing of their faith, and they get arrested. They get hauled before the Sanhedrin. And the account tells us this, Acts 4.13. Now, when they, the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized, here it is, don't miss this, that they had been with Jesus. See, that's the key. That's the key. They were regular men, just like you and me. They were called by God, just like you and me. And they've been with Jesus. Well, verses 17 through 19, carrying on this thought, we read, and he, Jesus, came down with them up on the mountain in prayer all night, calls the disciples to himself, chooses 12 apostles. He came down with them. And he stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all. Now, Jesus here, he's about to preach a famous message that he gives. It's known as the Sermon on the Plain, very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. We'll look at that next week. But I want you to notice as we close what Jesus does and how he does it. What he does and how he does it, very quickly and very simply. What Jesus does is he meets the multitude and he ministers to them. But how does Jesus choose to do it? This is what I want to close on. He came down with them. He came down with his disciples, with his apostles. Jesus came down with them. And listen, this is how it always works with Jesus. It's how it always works with him. Acts 1.1, in my former work, I told you about all that Jesus Christ began both to do and teach. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my disciples, my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Listen, Jesus wants to today come down to the earth and he wants to move and work and heal just as he did when he walked the earth. And how does he move and work? He moves and works through you. God's placed you, every one of you, 
in circles of influence, places where I could never go, you know people that I'll never meet. God divinely, supernaturally places people in your circle of influence. And his question for you today in light of our text is will your life be set near to God so that when he calls, you can hear and respond?